Scripture reading today is from Luke 22, 47 through 53. While he was speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to, to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour in the power of darkness. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, in case you're joining us uh, for the first time, we have been working through the book of Luke for a while now, and we are approaching uh, the end of Luke's account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and so we are now looking at the events directly leading up to the cross of Christ. I mentioned last week that as we uh, look at this uh, part of Scripture, we'll be considering how Jesus is both our substitute and our example, and we need to hold both of those together. As our substitute, Jesus did exactly what we could not do, provided the obedience, the righteousness uh, that was required on our behalf. As one hymn says, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. This is the heart of the gospel. I am not saved or justified by anything good that I might do. I am not even saved by the good works that God does in me or the good that God might accomplish through me, but only through what Christ has done for me. And if we lose sight of that, lose sight of Christ our substitute and see only the example, then we lose the gospel, we fall into some type of legalism. We have a Jesus who came not to save us, but to show us the way to save ourselves. One example of that in um, decades gone by, although still influential today, is what we call theological liberalism, simply the idea that we'll do away with all of these miracles in Scripture, like the idea that Jesus rose from the dead and instead proclaimed simply Christ the great moral teacher. But if Christ is simply a great moral teacher, we are all doomed Great moral teaching is not what sinners need. Great moral teaching only digs the hole deeper for sinners, only better shows us our own sin. And we will by nature reject that teaching. Sinners need a savior. Sinners need a substitute. On the other hand, as I pointed out last week, if we lose sight of Christ our example and see him as our substitute only, we might believe the gospel on paper, but by the way we live, we deny its truth, deny its power. We might end up with what some have called evangelical Gnosticism, uh, simply the idea of the death and resurrection of Christ. That's our ticket out of this world and into heaven, and how we live in the meantime is, is up to us to fill in the blanks. Uh, the result is a type of what some might call easy believism. I've said my sinner's prayer, I'm going to heaven. Now I can get on with living however I want to live, whatever seems right to me. 
rather than modeling my life around Jesus' call to deny myself, take up my cross daily, and follow him, I'm left to follow whatever pattern for life seems best to me, however I think life in this world ought to work. And we might call that, uh, using the words of Romans, being conformed to the pattern of this world. And of course, there are different ways we could see that fleshed out. Uh, Paul talks about one example of this in 2 Corinthians, uh, where he says, We have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So still today, we need to resist that same temptation to treat the word of God as if it's a product that we are selling and to use manipulation and marketing techniques to get people to buy it. And in extreme cases, we see that result in tampering with that product, the word of God, to make it more appealing. Become deceivers in the name of truth. Another example is found in the sentiment that you sometimes see that you know, all this stuff about turn the other cheek and love your enemies, that might be lovely for the kingdom of God, but of course that kingdom's not of this not of this world, here in the real world, turning the other cheek just doesn't work. We're at war. The world is hostile toward Christianity. If we want to preserve our faith, we need to fight fire with fire. We can't just wait for the meek to inherit the earth. We need the assertive to take it now. Well, in today's sermon text, what we will see is Jesus confronting these earthly patterns of behavior in both Judas and the disciples and the mob that came to arrest him. Um, as he says, this, as he says th th this is their hour and the power of darkness, right? Uh, they came in darkness to arrest him because they feared the crowds. They wanted this arrest to be secret, uh, to hide what they were trying to do. But even though darkness will have its way, Jesus here is still the light shining in the darkness. He still exposes their motives and their methods that they attempted to hide in the darkness. And we see that here first in Judas. Judas chose to betray Jesus with a kiss. And Mark gives us a little bit more detail on the background of this, which apparently Luke assumes we already know, that Judas had arranged this kiss as a signal to the, the mob and the, the chief priests and the leaders as a way to identify which, which guy is Jesus. That may be tough for us to imagine. Why did we need to identify who Jesus is? Nowadays, if somebody is, is famous and was making a stir like Jesus was in that day, everybody knows what they look like. They, their picture is on the Internet. And, of course, nowadays that we know, we know that Jesus looked exactly like Aragorn from the Lord of the Rings movies, right? So, but those movies hadn't come out yet, so they needed to signal uh, that this is, this is the right guy. I'm being tongue-in-cheek. But my point is that... Judas was being disgraceful and underhanded. Instead of openly saying, he's the one, arrest him, he plays this silly game to try to hide the fact that he's betraying Jesus, as if he wanted to pretend that uh, he's still a friend of Jesus and, and one of the twelve like anyone else. You might, some, another note on kissing, you might be aware that while kissing in our culture is mostly limited to romantic context, right? People in other places, and certainly at other times, have been much kissier, I guess, than we are. Uh, they gave out kisses like we give out handshakes, and 
Yeah, sometimes I almost detect a note of lament when teachers bring this up, like they want us to bring back the holy kiss that Paul talks about, greet one another with a holy kiss. I'm just going to throw this out there. I am perfectly fine with keeping our culture the way it is. Um, you can keep your lips to yourself. We'll find other culturally appropriate expressions. A hand, holy handshake is fine. We've got plenty of hand sanitizer out there in the lobby. It's great. Bring it on. But... In Jesus' day, a disciple might kiss his rabbi, his teacher, on the, the cheek or on the hand, a sign of both affection and respect. So what Judas is doing is taking that gesture of love and respect and using it to hide his ugly intentions. Apparently, on some level, as I said, he's hoping that the other disciples, and Jesus himself even, won't know about his betrayal, that he could pretend to be Jesus' friend while profiting from his downfall. And Jesus, as we know, sees right through it. As Judas, even as he draws near, Jesus says, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus sees through Judas's deception. Uh, he's, he says, it's, it's, I don't know what's going on here. Let me take a drink and start over. Jesus sees through Judas's deception. It's as if he's saying, I'm not an idiot, Judas. I know what you're doing. I see you. So Jesus is gentle and lowly. He is meek and innocent as a dove. He is not naive. He's not outwitted by Judas or by Satan. He exposes this false friendship of Judas for exactly what it is. He's shedding light on what Judas is trying to hide in the darkness. And what he is exposing here is a twisted kind of irony. Not only is Judas trying to hide his betrayal, but he's hiding it behind phony respect and affection. It is fake friendship, fake honor. We can trace that tactic back to of the early chapters of the book of Genesis, can't we? Genesis chapter 3, the snake in the garden pretends to be Eve's ally, pretends to have humanity's best interests at heart. You know, God is keeping something from you. This fruit is great. It'll open your eyes. You'll be like God. I'm your friend. I want you to have it. But that's not what Satan really wanted, was it? He wanted mankind to curse God and die. So here in another garden, we see that same snake working from the same playbook as he leads Judas to pretend to be Jesus' friend when he's really there to bring Christ's death. The greed and the cowardice of Judas are on full display. And it is just sad to think about what has happened to Judas. He's trying to build himself up by getting money, but his heart has become such a small and ugly thing, hasn't it? He's, he's engaging in this pathetic deception and for petty reasons we know 30 pieces of silver deceitful and disgraceful underhanded ways it's the way of satan and not the way of christ and the way of christ the character of christ exposes such things for what they are well in the next section jesus turns and sheds light on this worldly trust in the sword, trust in force that we see in really both the disciples and in this mob. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, as the psalm says. 
So we see the disciples. They see the crowd. It says they, they saw what would follow, so they know what's coming. And they propose a preemptive strike. They ask Jesus, you know, you want us to chop them with the sword? You want we should get stabby, depending on your translation. And one guy doesn't bother waiting for a reply, does he? The Gospel of John tells us that this was Peter. I don't know if John had something out for Peter there that he wanted to call attention to this. But uh, Peter draws his sword and chops off the right ear of the servant of the high priest. Commentaries like to point out that mutilated ears uh, were considered to render someone unfit for priestly service. I'm not sure if that would apply to the priest's servant or not, uh, but I can't blame them for pointing this out because it gives them an opportunity to tell the story of a first century B.C. high priest named John Hyrcanus who had his ears mutilated by a puppet king of the Parthian Empire named Antigonus II. According to the historian Josephus, uh, Antigonus pulled this off, um, uh, so to speak, uh, pulled the ears off, I guess. He pulled a Mike Tyson and uh, used his own teeth to bite the ears off of John Hyrcanus. And I don't know if that's really relevant to what we're talking about here in Luke, but it's just a cool story. I thought you might appreciate it more than a list of um, you know, ear-related puns that were all uh, pretty corny, uh, so to speak, but get it, corny ear puns, do we, do, we, do, we, do, we, do we catch, okay, all right, had to get one in there. Well, I'm not sure if Peter was aiming for the ear or if he was trying to deliver a fatal strike to the head and, and just missed, uh, but either way, Jesus says, essentially, knock it off, no more of this. Uh, Luke only records that Jesus told them to stop. If we look between math and Ma Matthew and John's account, there are two additional reasons that Jesus speaks. He says, whoever draws the sword will perish by the sword, so this is not the way uh, for you to live. And Jesus is determined to, the to go to the cross. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So they're trying to prevent Jesus' death, and they are trying to prevent it by dealing out death themselves. The disciples are trying to do the wrong thing and in the wrong way. So Jesus stops them. He heals the man's ear. And then he turns to the angry mob, the chief priests and the other leaders and their henchmen. And he has words for them about swords and clubs too. He says, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? <laughs> Didn't all fit on the slide. If you're listening to this online, it's just kind of funny. The word clubs is just on a... Okay. All right. <laughs> I don't know if I can recover from that, but... Uh, the word, not clubs, but the word robber that Jesus uses there, familiar word maybe, it, it's the same word that's used for Barabbas later on, this violent criminal that they choose to have released instead of Christ. So it's more than just a, a pickpocket or, or even a burglar that would stealthily break into someone's home. This is the same word that's used in the parable of the Good Samaritan for the thieves that uh, rob, ambush this guy on the, the road and, and beat him, uh, leave him for dead and take his possessions. I wonder, you know, if, if we 
set this in the Old West context, if an Old West kind of villain would be a good analogy, or even, you know, pirates, if pirates didn't make, a, make us think of, you know, parrots and eye patches and shiver me timbers, yar, and all that sort of stuff. But we're talking about someone who is armed and dangerous, both to life and property and really to the peace and security, the civil order, uh, really an enemy of the state, someone that you would come out against with swords and clubs, the National Guard, maybe, to take this person down. And so Jesus' question, I think it almost makes them look comical. It's, it's, it's almost like someone's pulled on them that prank where you tell someone that they're invited to a costume party and they get there and it's not a costume party. And they're the only one looking ridiculous in a chicken suit or whatever. Like, what's with the swords? And the, you after Blackbeard the pirate here? What's going on? Why are you looking like this? Uh, they look a bit ridiculous. Uh, Jesus has been gentle and lowly. His ministry has been about healing the sick and giving sight to the blind and casting out demons, helping people. He came to preach the gospel of the kingdom, good news. Uh, Good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Seems a bit silly to come against Jesus with swords and clubs, when this is who he's been, it's almost like, I don't know, you call the SWAT team to take out Mr. Rogers or something. It seems so excessive, it's almost comical. On the other hand, if Jesus were inclined to fight back, a mob with swords and clubs would not be enough. He could call a legion of 10,000 angels. This is the incarnate Son of God. All things were made through him and for him. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. If this were going to be a fight, swords and clubs are comically too little. They are woefully unprepared. But Jesus goes on. Clubs again. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. Luke tells us earlier why they didn't arrest Jesus in the temple. They were afraid. They were afraid of the people that they're supposedly leading. The same reason they have swords and clubs now. They are afraid. So they come in this show of force to try to intimidate and control Christ, control his followers, control the situation. They might have the swords and the clubs. We clearly see that Christ is in control still, don't we? Uh, He puts everyone in their place, and he doesn't need deceptive words to do it like Judas. He doesn't need a sword or a club like the mob simply speaks the truth. Uh, He is in control. Uh, Just a side note uh, put in here. This text comes up uh, whenever we start talking about the ethics around violence or self-control, self-control, self-defense versus pacifism or even uh, Christian discussions of gun rights or gun control. And I don't want to say that there's zero application from this passage to those debates and questions But I'll say it's not a straightforward application. I don't think this automatically settles those questions one way or another, and I'm not really going to chase the rabbit this morning, other than to say I do think we need to leave room for differing Christian consciences here. And the one thing that is clear is that we are not meant to spread the kingdom by force, whatever else we do. Uh, Might venture to say the Crusades were bad. Uh, But the big story in this text isn't how it applies to ethics of violence in the Christian life. I've kind of buried the lead. I kind of glanced over, glossed over uh, 
really the biggest story in this account, I think. Jesus has, in this text, performed his final miracle before his death. He healed this man's ear. His final miracle, what's striking, it wasn't given to someone who came to him in faith for healing. His final miracle was for the benefit of a servant of Christ's most powerful enemy among the Jewish leadership, a man who came with this angry mob to arrest Jesus, drag him off, falsely condemn him, and demand his death. A man who was attacked by one of Christ's own closest friends, who in turn had attacked him in defense of Christ. So Jesus, he dominates the scene of his arrest, even though he's surrounded by an angry mob with swords and clubs. He exposes the truth. He puts everyone in his place. But it's this character and this love of Christ that really shines forth in that dark hour. He exposes the world's hypocrisy and cowardice. He corrects his followers. And he loves his enemies all at the same time. See, our tendency, I know my tendency is to see those things as being in conflict and to just pick one, right? Some people spend their time correcting the church, and we look out there and see what's going on in some churches, and there is plenty out there to correct. But others might hear that and say, well, why are we attacking the church when our culture is going down the drain and there's all this wickedness around us? We need to be exposing what's going on in the world around us and being the conscience of of our culture. Others will say, let's stop attacking the world around us, and we need to start showing them the love of Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. But the example of Jesus cuts through all of those debates, doesn't it? The example of Jesus in this one passage includes all of that. Jesus did all three. He corrected his own followers. He exposed the hypocrisy and wickedness of the world, and he loved his enemies all at the same time. See, these all do go hand in hand, I think. Exposing the the futile patterns of this world is best done not only with words, but by showing that the way of Christ is better. The way of Christ is beautiful. And that involves loving correction wherever we're not actually following the way of Christ. And it involves loving our neighbors, even loving our enemies. So what we see in Christ is that loving your enemies doesn't mean compromising with the world or being a pushover. And shining a light on the world's darkness doesn't require being hateful or self-righteous. And we know that because that is how Jesus lived. This is how Jesus was the light that shined in the darkness. He held all of this together, even when he was under great duress, great stress, anxiety. He had just been sweating blood, and now he's surrounded by an armed and angry mob, and it is just stunning the example of Christ that that he is able to, despite the great personal burden he is bearing, love his enemies and correct those around him and perfectly display that godly character. And Jesus, you know, he saw the spiritual reality that was going on behind the mob in front of him. He says this, this is their hour and the power of darkness. The real struggle 
think as Jesus sees it, was not Jesus and his followers versus the angry mob. The real battle is the powers of darkness versus the Son of God. And Christ has come in the short term to lose the earthly battle, or what looks like a loss, in order to win the spiritual war. As I said, he said in one of the other gospel accounts, he could call 10,000 angels. For that matter, he could have made a deal with one fallen angel to take all the kingdoms of the earth by force back before he gave his earthly ministry or began it as Satan was tempting him in the wilderness. But what does it profit a man to gain the world if he loses his soul, right? His food was to do the will of the one who sent him. So for us, it's common, uh, and it's been common for a while, to, to hear that persecution is going to intensify for Christians in our culture as our culture becomes more secular. I don't know if that's the case or not. Certainly there are people who it seems would love to come after us with swords and clubs. When and if we are faced with that kind of hostility, I think we even more need to dig into the example of Christ. Otherwise, we will be faced with at least two temptations that we might give into. Of course, there's the temptation to, to cave in, uh, to abandon the truth, to avoid any hardship. But there's also the temptation to do what the disciples did and to draw our own swords and start swinging. And if we give in to either of those temptations, we will have compromised with the world and its patterns. We can compromise with the world by adopting its lies or adopting its methods. We can doubt God's law. We can also doubt God's promises. We can doubt that God really said, don't eat this fruit. Or we can doubt that God really said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If they come with swords and clubs, the key is to remember the example of Christ and remember the spiritual reality behind the events of whatever our day might bring. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, fighting for our lives against a mob. Our struggle is against spiritual powers of darkness fighting not primarily for our lives, but for our souls, equipped with the whole armor of God. And what is the whole armor of God? Truth, righteousness, the readiness given by the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. That's the armor that we need, and that is the example of Christ. But while Christ's example is crucial for us, we are also faced with the fact that we could not have done what Christ did. We sang and through that song prayed earlier for Christ to, for God to test our thoughts and our attitudes and the radiance of his purity. And the first thing we need to learn as God does that is that our thoughts and our attitudes don't pass that test. You know, I used to wonder, you look at the disciples' behavior here, you know, what, what should they have done? They weren't supposed to draw a sword and defend Jesus, and they also look bad for just fleeing and not sticking with Jesus. What are they supposed to do? What's the morally correct path for them to take? Maybe it's the one that Peter boasted that he would take, that he was prepared to go to Jesus with, to, to, to prison and to death. This might be idle speculation on my part, but I would submit that if anyone had been able to go with Christ to the cross, then Christ himself would have had no need to go to the cross. If anyone else 
could have had that character to become obedient to death, even death on the cross, if anyone else could have endured the temptations that Jesus faced and borne the full weight of God's wrath for sin and yet remained sinless and righteous in that, then what need would that person have had for a Savior? No sinner, no sinner could have followed Christ to prison and to death. So in the cross and in the events leading up to the cross, the sin of man is exposed for all to see. This hour of darkness was inevitable as soon as perfect righteousness stepped into this fallen world. People loved the darkness rather than the light, and their deeds were evil. So don't miss the fact that both the disciples and the mob were guilty of the same sin of putting their faith in the sword. The Bible doesn't divide the world into bad people and to good people, does it? The Bible divides, there's only two kinds of people. There are lost sinners and there are redeemed sinners, forgiven sinners. So the perfect character of Christ, it is an example for us, but it is an example that we cannot live up to. Even as the redeemed people of God, we look at Christ's conduct and realize that there's no way we could love our enemies as he did. We are aware of many ways we have failed even to love our friends and family, let alone our enemies. And countless more ways that we have failed to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and strength. So again, we are not saved by good that we do, not even saved by good works that God does in us or through us, but only what God does does for us in the person of Christ. And even though, good news of the gospel, we will one day stand in him before the throne complete. We will be conformed completely to the image of Christ with no trace of sin. What does the old hymn say in that moment? Jesus died my soul to save, my tongue shall still repeat. We will still recognize that it is all of Christ. It is his merit that gives us the grace to stand there and none of our own. So the good news is that Jesus' perfect obedience isn't just an example for us. He didn't just demonstrate righteousness for our benefit. He accomplished perfect righteousness on our behalf. The same suffering that revealed the condemnation we deserve also revealed the grace and mercy of God, undeserved but freely given to us. The same death that embodied our holy God's hatred of sin also is how the love of God was made manifest among us. The same cross that exposed our sin also buried it in the depths of the sea. Jesus, Son of God, I build on what thy cross has done for me. There, both my life and death I read, my guilt and pardon, there I see. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have shown us yourself, your glory, in the face of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you that we have this Savior, who 
not only gives us uh, an example of how we ought to be living, but more importantly even than that, that he supplied the perfect righteousness that we never could have hoped to accomplish. Uh, we thank you for who you are. You are perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, and yet with no contradiction, full of mercy and grace, loving kindness and faithfulness. These things are too wonderful for us to understand your nature and your character, who you are, our holy God, our creator, our sustainer, and our redeemer. We cannot grasp your glory, and we have sinned and fallen short of your glory. As your word tells us, we suppress that truth in righteousness. Your glory is evident in the things that you've made. It's there for us to see, and we did not want to glorify you or worship you as we ought and as you deserve. And yet, how unfathom, unfathomably glorious it is that you redeem us from our sinful way of life precisely by displaying that glory that we would deny in the cross of Christ where we see perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, we see the wrath of God on sin, and we see the mercy and grace and love of God freely poured out, undeserved, for sinful people like us. Oh, Father, keep us near the cross. Help us daily to return to the cross of Christ, where we find both our worth and our unworthiness, where our hearts are set free. Help us to live by light of the cross in full assurance of faith that we might, uh, through your grace, be transformed to go and to show and tell others of that same message of your grace and love in the cross. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name.